You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Thank you for joining us today. Um, we have a distinguished panel of telecommunications attorneys here. Uh, we will save time at the end for questions, maybe about 10 minutes, but uh, we're going to dive right into the issues after a very brief introduction of our panelists. To my far left, I have Matthew Brill, who's a partner at Latham & Watkins. Uh, next to him, Markham Erickson, uh, a partner at Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, this is Sarah Morris from uh, New, the New America Foundation's Open Technology Institute, and uh, Russ Hanser, who's a partner at Wilkinson Barker Knarr. So, at long last, we have. Uh, I'm gonna. Sorry. At long last, we have the net neutrality decision, and uh, I'm going to let Matthew start with uh, sort of what was at issue here and uh, dive right into what happened on Tuesday. <coughs> well, thanks. Thanks very much, Lydia. Um, nice to be with you all here. Uh, I. I, I represented cable operators in the FCC proceeding and in the D.C. Circuit case uh, through their association, NCTA, and um, several of the leading members of NCTA were my clients as well. We certainly would have um, preferred a different outcome, um, obviously, as, as challengers to the FCC's open Internet decision. Probably one thing that's really important to set the stage for understanding this debate and the court decision is to understand that what was at issue in the end wasn't so much about the core policy of, of net neutrality or open internet rules. At, at the FCC, most of the major players, the, the fixed broadband providers and mobile broadband providers and other stakeholders in this debate, all agreed that, that the FCC has a proper role to play in ensuring an open internet. All agree that bright line rules to prohibit blocking of uh, access internet content or throttling or um, some limits, significant limits on what, what the FCC calls paid prioritization, all would be appropriate. And I think to, to some degree the, the, the parties, including my clients, all agree that the FCC could play some role in policing interconnection disputes. The heart of the debate was what set of tools should the FCC use to enforce these norms? Should it be a common carrier public utility model of regulation known as Title II of the Communications Act, or should it be some more targeted authority centered on Section 76, uh, sorry, 706 of the 96 Telecom Act, which is focused on encouraging broadband deployment and had been held by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to provide authority for open Internet rules. And um, the, the concern of my clients and other petitioners in the case was that the Title II common carrier authorizations really sweep far more broadly than is necessary to ensure an open Internet and run the risk uh, over the long term of, of limiting investment and, and, and growth of, uh, by subjecting these services to a public utility regulatory model, um, over-regulating them and, and subjecting providers to um, potential rate regulation and, and, and other limits on their business flexibility and really um, sort of an overcorrection to the perceived problem. The court, uh, in its decision last week, denied the petitioner's central challenges to the use of Title II, to the reclassification of broadband Internet access as a common carrier telecommunications service. The FCC, in a series of decisions going back to uh, the, the, over a decade, had said that broadband Internet access uh, provided over cable facilities, over telco facilities, over wireless broadband facilities, is an information service because it combines a, a telecommunications functionality, and telecommunications is an offering of transmission, uh, a pure transmission function, really sending data from one point to another, 
the FCC had originally said it combines that telecommunications with the processing of information. So in, in terms of Internet access, when you retrieve information from a website, when you upload photos to Dropbox, when you use the technical functions of uh, domain name service uh, functions and caching functions, when information is stored, when, when it's being downloaded to you. The FCC had originally said that all these functions together combine the transmission and the information processing in a way that can't be separated out and together should be understood to be an information service. Um, what was at the heart of this debate was now the FCC changed its mind and, and as a means of, of ensuring broader authority over uh, open Internet policies, the FCC said now, in light of changed circumstances and a changed understanding, the, the service should be under, understood as, as largely a telecommunication service, that there's a separate transmission functionality that's offered to the public. And, and the, the heart of the decision uh, by the D.C. Circuit was to uphold the FCC's discretion to reach that classification. Um, it sort of lived by the sword, died by the sword. The FCC had been upheld by the Supreme Court in a, in a case called Brand X when it said that Internet access is an information service and only an information service um, because the Supreme Court said the agency has discretion to interpret the statute in that manner. Uh, the, the D.C. Circuit is now saying that same discretion that allowed an information service classification allows for a telecommunications service uh, classification. Um, in addition, um, the, the court said the FCC went about its decision in a reasonable manner. It adequately justified the ruling on policy grounds. It, it took into account the reliance interests of broadband providers who had invested billions of dollars based on the prior classification. It adequately explained all of the uh, aspects of its decision and how they comported with the record. Um, that's really the key ground for the dissent, which I know Russ is going to talk about in more detail. The dissenting judge, Judge Williams, concluded that the FCC had not at all uh, justified its decision, that even if it has the ability under the Communications Act to deem broadband Internet access to be a telecommunications service, that, that the FCC did so in a way that's arbitrary and capricious because it, it, it didn't adequately justify the reclassification in light of the reliance interests and in light of other factors. Um, I'll just briefly mention, um, you know, other big issues in the case beyond this core reclassification were whether wireless broadband and its own statutory classification were properly handled. The court said yes. Um, whether the interconnection of broadband networks with other networks um, that, that are kind of out in the backbone can be uh, encompassed within this common carrier telecommunications service regime, and the court again said yes. Um, whether uh, the, the, the broadband Internet access service can be regulated this way without um, running afoul of the First Amendment or uh, whether any of the bright line rules uh, which some of the petitioners challenge should be deemed inconsistent with the Communications Act or the Administrative Procedure Act. And the court again said yes to all those things. So it, it was a sweeping victory uh, two to one for the FCC and uh, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about the implications of that victory and, and potential uh, appellate challenges that, that may follow. Thanks, Matt. Markham, this was the third time these decisions have come before the court. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those changed circumstances were that parties argued in the case, sure. that the FCC felt justified the rules, and then talk a little bit more about the majority opinion? Sure. Well, uh, thank you, Lydia, and, and uh, the Internet Caucus, Tim, for uh, putting this together, and for all of you for being here. appreciate it, uh, Matt, for that summary. Uh, two to one, though, I will say three to oh on the key issue of whether the FCC had the statutory authority to do what it did, which is uh, – critical for thinking about the appellate prospects or the appeals prospects of the decision, I think. Uh, so 
Uh, I represented in the litigation uh, Netflix Level 3, DISH, and Encompass, which is a trade association that represents uh, uh, edge providers, uh, backbone networks, and so-called competitive tele telecommunications providers. I also represented the Internet Association as amicus, and in the underlying docket represented Netflix and Encompass. Um, so the way I think about this is um, lawyers love analogies. If you indulge the analogy a bit, um, as a 15-year work toward coming up with a symphony, a piece, of, a piece of music, if you will, and there's three stakeholders that largely represent, if you indulge the, this uh, analogy, uh, different sections of the, of the orchestra, each playing their part. And for the last 15 years, as they tried to come up with this piece of music, there's been quite a bit of dissonance. And I think Tuesday's decision represents sort of fi finally a sort of a harmonious product in that they were able to, uh, to harmonize uh, their different pieces. And the three stakeholders, if you will, would be sort of the public at large, which would include policymakers and, and the, the, the entities that are providing comments to the, to the commission, which advocated for... Uh, internet openness as a normative value system, and that's largely been agreed to for now a number of years, that there should be openness of the internet. Uh, secondly, as a se separate section of this orchestra, if you will, uh, the expert agency that's trying to take this normative value and put some details to it and figure out how you would um, uh, enforce this value system. And then finally, the Federal Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit uh, which has reviewed and educated the expert agency as it sought <clears throat> to develop a sustainable value system over these last 15 years. Um, and so where we began is in the early 2000s, where even when the FCC classified broadband Internet access providers, whether it was mobile or DSL or cable, as information services, that, that is not telecommunication services that be regulated under the public utility-style uh, part of the, of the Act, Title II, it said even at that time, however, that Internet openness was, the value, was a value that they intended to protect and enforce against those broadband Internet access. In fact, they said they would not hesitate to do so, despite the fact that they were not classifying those providers as Title II providers. So this isn't a question of the value system or, in fact, whether there should be a way to enforce. So there's sometimes some confusion of whether there should be regulation or deregulation and at least in this regard, whether there should be regulation of broadband Internet access providers to enforce this value system, there's been widespread agreement and bipartisan agreement from the Commission from those early 2000s. Um, so then in 2007, uh, the Commission found that one provider, Comcast, had violated that value system, and it sought to enforce for the first time the value system that it said it would. Uh, and the D.C. Circuit said, you haven't provided in enforcing against that any statutory authority that we can support you in doing so, and it sent it back to the Commission. And the Commission then promulgated its first set of open Internet or rules, and it grounded that authority in uh, seven, Section 706, which is not the common carrier provision. Um, and it had a no-blocking rule and anti-discrimination rule, and the D.C. Circuit said to the Commission, okay, we agree with you that Section 706 is a proper grant of authority. It does give you authority to do quite a bit of things, but... Uh, with regard to anti-discrimination and no blocking, those are classic common law concepts of common carriers to take all comers and not block and not charge differentiated pricing. And so while 706 is a, is a fine statute of, of authority, and that was the first time actually that, that had been decided, um, 
that your rules are actually common carrier rules. So you can't have these rules unless you would classify these companies as common carriers. Uh, importantly in that decision, the D.C. Circuit said, and by the way, though, we think the value system you created has been justified, that we think that the, the, the determination that there have to be rules, that there would not be as much broadband investment without rules, we agree with you. We, th we think that you, you adequately supported that and that these rules will incent innovation. We think that you adequately justified that. So at that point, sort of that part of the debate was really over. So then it became, well, if you're going to have this value system of no blocking uh, and an anti-discrimination rule, then how do you reconcile that with the D.C. Circuit's opinion? And the FCC ultimately said uh, that we're going to regulate these companies to protect this value system as common carriers. We think that properly understanding what they do is that they are common carriers. And the D.C. Circuit said, okay, you got it right. And so I look at sort of the D.C. Circuit. In fact, one of the pleadings from the FCC to the D.C. Circuit said, we have essentially said you've educated us over the years about what the statute means and how to enforce this value system. And so I think finally you sort of see the convergence of those three different sets of the orchestra, if you will, the value system that's largely been not in dispute for a number of years uh, with the ability to enforce it and with the statutory mechanism to enforce it. And really because you have three judges that all say that the FCC actually had the authority to do that, I think very little cause to, to see how the opinions in much jeopardy relative to the FCC's authority to do so. Um, so I think that brings us to, to, to Tuesday, which I sort of see this, all these dis, dissonant parts of this orchestra that have now converged to make a harmonious product. And we might call this Wheeler's Opus Magnum. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for that. So, Sarah, maybe you can tell us a little bit about why it matters how the Internet is regulated and what were the stakes, what do you view as the stakes of having been for consumers, for, for policymakers, and for businesses? Sure. Um, and again, I'm Sarah Morris. I'm with the Open Technology Institute at New America, and we've been longtime advocates of strong, enforceable net neutrality rules um, that were grounded in Title II authority. And importantly, and this speaks, I think, to your question about why these rules matter, um, of, there were uh, two issues of particular significance for my organization. One was um, ensuring that the rules this time around were extended to mobile and, and creating parity between the rules um, with regard to fixed and uh, wireless providers. And so we think that the win at the D.C. Circuit on that, that point is particularly important because it means that as, a, as an Internet user, as you are you know, on your phones, connected to the Wi-Fi, hopefully, uh, in, this, in this room, um, that you have protect net neutrality protections, but that as you, you know, walk outside and your phone shifts to your wi wireless provider's network, that you don't suddenly lose protections um, as, you, as you move between those two networks, which is happening more and more seamlessly as, as the networks evolve. Um, and this is particularly important for low-income co consumers and, and uh, communities of color um, because they tend to rely uh, uh, more often or even exclusively on mobile networks as their, as their primary means for accessing the Internet. And having a disconnect um, between the rules or, or disparate rules over fixed and wireless would have meant that um, a large segment of the population and a vulnerable segment of the population would be unprotected in, in a large number of instances. But so, you know, so that was one 
component of the rules that was really particular, really important for us, another component of the rules was um, the FCC's decision to extend its authority over interconnection disputes. Um, OTI spent a lot of time in the underlying proceeding documenting the harms that result when carriers and um, transit providers, the, the people who hand off net network to the carrier's last mile um, uh, resident home broadband service, um, when, when those two sets of entities, the transit providers and the last mile ISPs, they would get in, when they would get into disputes, um, what would often happen was that the network would suffer as a result. It wasn't because of a lack of adequate access on the, the last mile, so to speak, but rather because the pieces, the, I, I like to use the analogy of pipes here, even though I know that raises chuckles sometimes, but the pipes were big enough. The, the fittings that were connecting the pipes were often not, and so what would happen was those fittings, which are, are fairly easy to, um, to expand, would just be left congested as the, the two types of carriers would engage in disputes. And so um, we have several. Talk about why that's important for different Sure, it's important for, um, it's important for consumers because it means that any time that you are trying to access um, internet traffic, internet content that is either uh, requires a lot of capacity, like a streaming video, or a, a or is it would be affected by by latency or packet loss. So things like streaming video, things like using a home VPN to access your work, um, things like Skype calls, um, all of those things, regardless of who the provider was, were suffering when these when the carriers uh, engaged in those disputes because it, it wasn't a, tar a targeted attack, but rather a, a not attack, but it wasn't a, a targeted harm. It was something that happened um, to all traffic. So your emails might get through, but that's just because your your email requires very little um, capacity to send. And OTI, um, along with uh, our partners in the Measurement Lab measurement platform, um, documented these harms extensively in a series of two papers, one from Measurement Lab on, um, on the technical analysis of, of the data that MLab had collected, and then OTI followed up with a policy paper as to why that was um, important in the context of, of the net neutrality debate. And so importantly, the, the court also upheld um, that portion of the FCC's, we won't call them rules, they didn't actually assert any rules over interconnection, though they um, did assert authority to hear complaints about those disputes if they were to come up. But all of this, I think, is um, sort of dove right into the specifics, but this is all broadly important for consumers because um, and a tremendous victory for, for consumers because it means that any time that you're accessing content online, you can do so without any fear of interference from your, from your broadband provider. Um, the Brightline rules say they can't block content, they can't throttle content, and um, they can't allow any paid prioritizations arrangements to create uh, winners and losers online. So this is important for you um, as internet users because it means that you can, you can access the internet in the way that it was built and architected and intended. It's important for um, the innovators online who uh, do not yet have uh, their, their, their um, internet, um, uh, internet company is not large enough to sort of compete with the bigwigs online and may need more time to ensure that they can get enough eyeballs on their service to, to grow it and, and acquire more capital to, um, to make it sustainable. And so the, the rules make the, the, the internet a level platform both for consumers to access information and communicate, but also for the companies looking to build the next, um, the next big thing. And they can do so without any fear of um, hidden fees from their carriers or um, additional uh, 
hurdles that they have to jump through in that regard. Such as a carrier demanding that a, a company pay more to get their Sure. I mean, that gets content. to the, the ban on, on paid prioritization where, you know, if you are a large, uh, um, well-resourced company that you may be able to pay for a fast lane online, but that given that networks have a finite, of capaci- finite amount of capacity available, that that fast lane inherently creates um, a slow lane for the rest of the network as it grows larger. Thanks. Now, Russ, there was a very lengthy dissent in this uh, case from one of the three judges, and he focused a lot on paid pri- prioritization and the question of whether or not that uh, harms or helps uh, businesses, particularly small businesses. Can you talk a little bit about the dissent and about that issue? Sure, I'd be happy to. Green light. Ah, there we go. So, uh, so yes. Um, let me a few prefatory matters. So, first, thank you, Net uh, Caucus. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Lydia, for having me. Uh, second, in the interest of disclosure, so I represented. Uh, in the proceeding below before the FCC, I represented principally CTIA, the Wireless Association, and uh, Verizon. And in the litigation, I represented uh, CenturyLink, uh, one of the petitioners. Uh, so, you know, uh, as those of you in the audience who are my friends know, I saw Hamilton this weekend with my daughter after uh, after <laughs> living and breathing the soundtrack for about three months. So, as between Hamilton and this decision, I preferred Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, um, the other thing I just wanted to say is my firm has done a 13-page summary. We're now about a week out, so I feel comfortable saying if you want a copy, email me. You can Google me and find me. Happy to send that to you. Uh, okay, so for, and the, the final matter, Prefter, I just want to underscore something that Matt and Markham both said, which is I think often lost in this debate, which is at, in this most recent round anyway, there really wasn't that much debate under the core policy of Internet openness. This was a, a, a point that ISPs, whatever they had m- might have argued before, had basically uh, embraced by the, by the time of uh, the beginning of this proceeding and the last few years. Uh, I know some uh, of the public interest folks and some, uh, you know, maybe Markham's clients sort of look askance at that and say, well, but it took a long time and you used to not be in favor of it. And I guess in response to that, I'd say, well, that should be the point of a good discourse and dialogue to move people's positions. And I think you would not find among any of my clients anyway the view that Internet openness is not important. And, and just as an aside to something Sarah said a moment ago, it's true that paid prioritization was a very important part of the decision. There's effectively never been any instance in which a U.S. ISP has tried to do that. Uh, the only piece of evidence folks have ever pointed to is a statement made by counsel during the oral argument in the last case that they might want to do it sometime in the future. Uh, so, so this was largely a debate over legal authority and legal framework, and I thought Markham's analogy really was, was wonderful in that regard. So, okay, so what did Judge Williams say? Um, right off the bat, I hate to be disagreeable. I want to disagree with one thing Markham said. Judge Williams didn't quite say that the court, that the agency had legal authority to reclassify. What he said, the relevant sentence is, I agree with the majority that the commission's reclassification of broadband internet as a telecommunications service may not run afoul of any statutory dictate in the Telecommunications Act. Uh, I agree that's not, you know, something that uh, ISPs or others are going to be uh, plastering all over the press. It's not a clear statement either way, but he seemed to be a little skeptical. In any event, Judge Williams thought the reclassification had not been properly defended, and therefore he would have vacated it. Uh, said sort of, even if there is legal authority here, the FCC didn't go through its paces and do the kinds of things that an administrative agency must do to justify its decisions. Judge Williams, I think, was especially moved by a line of case law, uh, uh, the Supreme Court case law stemming mostly from a, a 2009 decision known as Fox and a more recent 
decision known as Perez that said in certain circumstances, for example, when the agency is changing its factual conclusions or when it is upsetting uh, reliance interests, the agency has to do more than it uh, might otherwise need to do to justify a change in course. To Judge Williams, anyway, the agency had not done that in this case uh, and had not sort of adequately explained why things had changed. Uh, Judge Williams also picked, on, uh, picked up on a theme that Judge Silberman had written about in uh, the last decision on this, on this issue uh, involving sort of the extent to which the Commission really needed to make findings about market power before taking the kind of action it took. And Judge Williams uh, argued anyway that market power, even if not determinative to the reclassification, w was relevant to it and that the commission had, not, uh, commission had not really taken on the market power issue. It had talked about, I think, what he referred to as sort of market power light issues or like issues, uh, such as switching costs and things like that, but had not really dug down on market power the way he anyway would have liked it to. Uh, on the issue Lydia mentioned, uh, I'd say the next major theme of Judge Williams' opinion was Section 201 of the Act and pay prioritization. So for those of you who aren't communications lawyers, to Section 201 of the Act is kind of bedrock portion of the Communications Act that applies to common carriers and, and not to others. And it says that common carriers have to act in just and reasonable ways and can't take actions that are unjust and unreasonable. And then Section 202, it's sort of brother-slash-sister provision, says common carriers can't take actions that are unjustly or unreasonably discriminatory. Those are kind of the heart of common carrier regulation. Uh, and uh, Judge Williams was particularly concerned that the ban on paid prioritization uh, did not support but actually ran afoul in some ways of precedent in those areas and that uh, common carriers have always, in his view, been allowed to charge different amounts for different kinds of service. And Judge Williams pointed out under the FCC's current regime, well, sort of always has been, an ISP can say you can buy 5 megs a second for $30, but you can get 10 megs a second for $50, always able to discriminate the kind of service that an end user can buy. Uh, and Judge Williams says why not also allow them to discriminate uh, to, to differentiate, maybe is a better term, the way he would look at it, differentiate between the services that an edge provider can buy. Um, so he thought that there was some tension between the precepts and the precedent regarding sections 201 and 202 and the ban on prey prioritization. Uh, two other at least main themes, I think, in Judge Williams' opinion. Uh, one was on section 706, which uh, I think a few of the prior panelists have mentioned. So the 2014 decision in the Verizon case on these issues said, this provision known as Section 706 of the 96 Act gives the FCC authority to regulate broadband in the interest of promoting deployment. Uh, uh, Judge Williams, having found that the FCC did not adequately justify its reclassification, then had to turn to would Section 706 have justified the, the rules at issue here. And, and again, he's skeptical. He said Section 706, when you look at it, talks about very deregulatory means toward promoting broadband deployment. And he said it, it was uh, – it was odd, he thought, for the FCC to use this deregulatory provision to adopt what he thought were rather onerous rules. Uh, he particularly also mentioned that that regime was inconsistent with other parts of the statute, most notably Section 230 of the Act, which uh, speaks in terms uh, – there's debate over what it means, but it speaks in terms of uh, keeping the, re the Internet free of unnecessary regulation. Uh, and finally, he talked a bit about forbearance. So one important piece of the FCC's decision was it reclassified by virtue of reclassifying broadband as a telecommunications service, uh, as an initial matter anyway, a very wide breadth of, of requirements fell on broadband internet access providers. The FCC recognized that 
the, many of those uh, were not appropriate for broadband, and it used different statutory authority. It had to peel back regulation and did that fairly broadly, not as broadly as I think uh, some of my clients had hoped, but but fairly broadly. And Judge Williams said, you know, this highlights what he called the dodgy character of uh, of the FCC's uh, sort of two-step, sort of reclassifying such that you add a lot of regulation, but then when you have to use your forbearance authority to cut back a great deal of it, in Judge Williams' view, that highlights that there was something odd going on in reclassification. In other words, in his view, if you have to use that much forbearance to get to the right place, perhaps that's a signal that Congress did not intend for these services to be treated as common carrier services. Go ahead. <clears throat> And again, I'm just describing Judge Williams. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And, and I uh, also, not to be disagreeable, but to go back to the, it was actually on the point of, of disagreement between um, between you and Markham, um, this idea. So I, I kind of want to put this into context, and I, I will use a, a case law name uh, or two. And oh, no, my screen just went dark. Um, uh, but I hope that this is not meant to be an exhaustive legal lecture, but rather just to situate this in terms of what happened at the D.C. Circuit. So the FCC under Brand X, which is the, the court decision which, which the majority relied primarily on in, in um, finding that the FCC had authority to, to implement these rules and had properly justified them, um, re reflected what we call in the lawyer lingo Chevron deference. So Chevron has Chevron held that the FCC, the agencies have the authority to, when a statute is determined to be ambiguous, that they have the ability to interpret that statute as the expert agency. And so long as, so that's step one, ambiguous stat statute means they can interpret it. Uh, step two, um, that the court will defer um, to the agency's decision so long as that, that decision was reasonable. It doesn't have to be the best decision. It doesn't have to be a decision even that the, the court agrees was the right one, so long as it was reasonable in light of the circumstances. And so what we have from the D.C. Circuit is more, uh, sub, with, with the caveat of, of, of the point that you made about uh, Judge Williams hedging a bit on this point, what we have is the, the court almost entirely in agreement that this, the, the Chevron step one question was answered, that the FCC has the authority to interpret here because the statute is ambiguous. And I think a big reason that a lot of proponents of net neutrality felt confident in the FCC's reclassification in particular being upheld was because this was a point that was already decided by the Supreme Court in Brand X. Um, there the court said, yes, the statute is ambiguous. FCC, at this point, you're interpreting it as saying that uh, as broadband being classified as an information service. Um, so the question really at issue was, was and for Judge Williams, and, and uh, those who might wish to pursue this matter further is whether or not the FCC was reasonable in its interpretation. Um, and there we have the majority of the courts, uh, the, the just judges saying yes, um, with one dissenting judge saying no, because the FCC had not <coughs> properly justified um, its decision to reclassify. So. Can I Go ahead. So, so I largely agree with what Sarah said. The one point on which I, I may disagree is, implicitly anyway, is the, the question under Chevron is exactly, is the statute ambiguous? But statutes are not either entirely ambiguous or entirely unambiguous. The question is, are they ambiguous with respect to the question at issue? And I think what you saw in the briefs and a little bit in the, the, the dueling opinions here is uh, dispute over what is the relevant thing about which Brand X found the found the statute to be ambiguous. And I think the petitioners, my, my group of petitioners, Matt's group of petitioners, thought that that decision found ambiguity in a fairly narrow part of the statute and that what the FCC did in the order here extended beyond that ambiguity. And, and that was, you know, 
one can disagree over whether that's right, but that's where the dis that's where the dispute lay. I think. Yeah, I mean, one one colorful way to illustrate that is that we talked about in the process of the briefing is the Supreme Court may say on a particular issue there's some ambiguity as to whether something is colored green or yellow, and I'm colorblind and I often have that problem. But that doesn't mean the agency can say it's purple. So that, that's the kind of debate we're having. We're saying there are some subtleties about internet access classification, and there was some range for the FCC to say, as between green and yellow, we're going to pick green. But that doesn't mean they can do something entirely outside the scope of that ambiguity. Well, and I would argue that was the debate we had, but it's a debate that's largely settled now, absent uh, the Supreme Court taking on the decision. Well, since we're all talking about having an ambiguous statute there, we've seen a number of uh, net neutrality writers and also some small net neutrality bills going through the House and the Senate this year. Um, now that the decision is out, what do you all think, uh, what steps do you think Congress is going to take or maybe should take uh, to clarify its intent and maybe clarify some of that ambiguity in the statute? Uh, what do you think would happen next with the elections? Give us a little bit of a sense of what's going to happen here on Capitol Hill this year. Well, well as a process matter, so the, 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 uh, the parties can still appeal uh, either to the full D.C. Circuit <laughs> on Bonk um, or they can appeal to the Supreme Court. I think AT&T said publicly, although someone correct me if I'm wrong, that they will, they intend to appeal to the Supreme Court, um, and um, I assume others uh, will do that. Um, I usually find that until those uh, steps have been exhausted that uh, it's hard for Congress to weigh in because there's always a group that says that you shouldn't interfere with pending litigation. So uh, it'll take some time for the courts to uh, to dispatch with or accept uh, one way or the other that. So I think until I think until the judicial process is completely exhausted, I I my my sense is it's very at least precedent is that Congress doesn't step in, or at least it's hard for Congress to do something because there's always a, a part of Congress that will say, well, let's wait to see what happens with the case. So that's my sense of of. Uh, yeah, I, I, I won't make any predictions about what Congress will or won't do, but, but um, let me try to make the case as a citizen and as a representative of broadband providers why legislation is really still very much needed in this arena. And, and, and of course, Markham's right. I mean, these, these issues, when they come before a panel of the Court of Appeals, don't often end there. there. There may be rehearing. There may be proceedings in front of the Supreme Court. But, but right now, the, the FCC has pretty breathtaking power over the Internet. And, um, you know, I hope, as a, as a representative of broadband providers, that they act with restraint with, with respect to that power. But the chilling effect is very real. Um, if we think about some of the debates that are going on today in the, in the communications landscape about things like zero rating, and, and if you think about a popular plan, um, provider I don't represent, T-Mobile introduced its binge on plan where you can have access to video streaming without it counting against your data cap. From my perspective as a mobile user, you know, that's a terrific innovation in the marketplace. To give people the opportunity to consume more content without having to pay more for it is a terrific thing. What worries me under the FCC's regime, which has now been upheld, is that the FCC could just decide all of the sudden that that's anti-competitive and on balance um, contrary to its conception of the open internet rules. It has this broad general conduct standard under which it said maybe zero rating is good, 
Maybe it's bad. We'll let you know someday. And it has said about data caps, maybe they're good on balance and fair and reasonable, but maybe they're illegal. And that's, that's really damaging to, to investment and to innovation. If you're a company and you're thinking about rolling out these new packages, and the FCC may come along and say, you know, I'm sorry, we thought about this more, and you now are, are not only prohibited from doing that, but, but you face a $100 million fine, as it has proposed in, in one case for AT&T. You know, that has a real chilling effect. So. I mean, I see a huge role for Congress in, in bringing certainty while the appellate process may be playing out for another couple of years. Um, the opportunity, I think, is, is, is to, to really to, to build on the consensus that I think we've talked about. There's a broad policy consensus that we should have rules against blocking, rules against throttling, uh, rules against paid partisanship, and the real debate is, you know, is is Title II necessary to support those rules, or is it maybe overkill? And and a more targeted bill that protects those norms without risking some of the overkill um, could be the best thing for consumers. A lot of the arguments from net neutrality proponents was that the reason Title II was necessary is that there was tremendous uncertainty about whether Section 706 really would allow effective enforcement of open internet rules. New legislation would take those concerns off the table and ensure an enforceable regime. So I, I still think legislation would be uh, critically important for striking the right balance in, in a pro-investment way. I, I think there's a much different, a much different way to look at that uh, that uh, overhang, that regulatory overhang, and, and it's this: that if you look at the internet ecosystem, you largely have the FCC that's regulating the broadband internet access providers, and the FTC that that regulates uh, the internet edge providers. Federal Trade Commission. Uh, Federal Trade Commission. Um, and if you think about the F Federal Trade Commission, uh, they have incredibly broad power over the entities that they regulate. The statute basically says they have the ability to regulate against unfair or deceptive trade practices. And what that means is what they say it means, and they don't have rulemaking authority. In other words, uh, what they say it means might be when you get an enforcement action against you. And if you're a consumer-sensitive company in terms of consumer perception, it puts one in a very difficult position to actually challenge that, even if you think that the regulator has gone too far. And so what you see is not uncommonly 5, 10, 20-year consent decrees, where everything you do is sort of a, uh, has to be looked at by your regulator before you take the next step. Uh, based on your consent decree and where they're auditing you for 20 years. Uh, the FCC, uh, while it does have broad uh, authority, and this case uh, uh, solidifies that, I think the one benefit for stakeholders in that regime is they promulgate regulations, so you typically know what's coming at you beforehand, so you have an ex-ante regulatory scheme. And if you think those regulations go too far, you can challenge those in court, and you can comment on proposed regulations and try to shape the agency's thinking. Those are things that are largely not available for the FTC. So I don't think that this is uh, a situation where you have an agency that's 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 power grabs is sort of unprecedented, or it, even within the internet ecosystem, is some going, somehow going to dramatically change investment decisions or innovation uh, decisions because you largely have a regulatory regime by the FTC that's at least as powerful, at least as broad, and in some ways more difficult because you may not see what the regulator is concerned about until the enforcement action happens. Well, and I just have one, if, I, if that's okay, uh, a, a little bit of a pushback on, on a point that Matt made and that I hear a lot um, 
from from those who who have concern who who have concerns about the the rules as enacted by the FCC. But then a, I'll make a, a quick broader point um, as to the next steps in terms of congressional action. So there's this little dance that happens around the general conduct rule and and. Uh, it's puzzling to me because when the general conduct rule was called the commercial reason, commercially reasonableness standard under 706 and the FCC sort of original draft of the proposed rules, people tended to like that. They said, oh, 706, that's the, pa I mean, people who uh, were opposed to using Title II authority for the rules said, we like this standard. Uh, it'll, it's, it can be applied on a case-by-case -case basis, which is great because it doesn't prohibit wide swaths of behavior. I'll, I'll just interrupt briefly to say, when no one ever said we liked it, we hated it less. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair, but, but now, now the, the theme has turned to being strongly in favor of these bright line rules, but really nervous about um, this case-by-case -case analysis. And I think that the, what the FCC did here is actually very thoughtful and sophisticated. They, they took input from, um, and I guess this, is, this goes to my larger point, the FCC, as the expert agency in this space, took input from um, a wide range of stakeholders in D.C., from 4 million plus or, or nearly 4 million um, uh, commenters around the country, and uh, really, really spent a long time um, and iterations thinking about what the best way, from a legal standpoint, was for them to get these strong rules that they believed that they needed to enact. And they, they ultimately decided that Title II was the best way to do that. The D.C. Circuit, which has twice denied the FCC's assertions of the rules and has taken a very critical look at the FCC in previous uh, 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 judicial proceedings, this time said, yes, you got it right. Um, after all of this time, all of this work, uh, you have, you've gotten to the point where the rules match up with legal authority um, and you've properly justified them. And so uh, as, as re with respect to Congress, I think that that process is one that we should really, uh, really respect. And I think we, we can talk more about likelihood of Supreme Court appeal. I think for a lot of reasons that, it, that that's a big hurdle to get uh, this case both before the, the Supreme Court and also to get a, a ruling that overturns the D.C. Circuit at this point. Um, but really, in our view, that this debate is settled and the book is closed um, and that, that these rules have been justified in a number of different forums. So, so I guess a couple of reactions. One, I, I guess I disagree a bit with Markham's construct, which if I get it right, is the FTC is actually a much blunter and much more powerful instrument, and so it's better for ISPs to have the FCC making ex-ante rules. I, I understand why that's appealing in theory, but in fact, when you look in practice, the FTC has acted with much more restraint. Uh, it has uh, worked much more closely with providers than at least the current FCC has. There, there's a lot of uh, context here about the current FCC enforcement posture, which would be a whole other hour into itself, but the FCC has been extremely aggressive. The, F the FTC has generally, under Democratic and, and Republican administrations alike, been more restrained. And I suspect the 20-year consent decrees Markham talks about, sometimes known as fencing-in relief, uh, where carrier providers are, are agree to be fenced in for some time, I suspect a lot of clients would actually prefer a structured fencing-in remedy under the FTC, which was negotiated, than rules that have sort of are, are once highly prescriptive and, and fairly uh, vague. I, I'm guessing that's what they think. Um, on the issue is settled question, I will not opine on what the courts will do. I, I, I don't know uh, what the courts will do. But I will say that I hope the issue isn't – I hope even if the issues that were at issue in the case are settled, I hope the whole construct of how these rules are applied aren't settled. I, 
I think of this, as I've said to some folks, I, I think of this as the Spider-Man principle. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. So now the FCC has been granted great power to apply this very broad general conduct standard. Uh, and, and of course, when it does so, it will be subject to as-applied challenges, if necessary, if warranted. But what, what the FCC needs to do now is not sort of say we have a rigid understanding of how this works going forward, but look at uh, uh, services like Binge On, uh, which Matt mentioned. Look at other services and say, is this something that is benefiting consumers? Is this something that is really harming uh, the Internet ecosystem? If, it, if, something, if, if there's a service that does harm the Internet ecosystem, does harm consumers, maybe the FCC should take action, although my guess is that that service will not be very popular and the market will punish the, the provider. But, but where, provider, where users are being helped, uh, I think we have to be very, the FCC rather, has to be very vigilant about not elevating dogma over consumer value. And I think that's the fear of a lot of providers. And this is just one area where I found the court's decision disappointing. Courts are, by design, sort of insulated from the business process. There are reasons for that. But when the majority said, well, it's okay that the rules are very vague because providers can always go to the FCC and get an advisory opinion, that's, that doesn't pass muster. Uh, any communications lawyer will tell you that doesn't pass muster. If you're a high-tech company and you want to go to an agency that's going to take a year or more to give you uh, a, a ruling on what's, going to, what's allowed and what's not allowed, by the way, the order actually said that these advisory opinions wouldn't even be binding, so whatever, whatever comfort you might take is going to be fleeting anyway. That doesn't work for business. I, Matt, Matt, Markham, we all advise businesses, and that's not how they work. They need some assurance, and they need to know what risk they take, and there is a chilling effect when you don't know any, whether anything you do is going to be overturned or, but, or give rise to fines. Well, the, the core point to the FCC point, and I have sought advisory opinions from the Department of Justice and the antitrust space, and, and those can take a, uh, a year or two or longer, and they're not um, necessarily uh, – they, they don't protect you against uh, – uh, enforcement uh, per se. So there is some precedent there. But, but I'd say on the issues of a general conduct standard or things that aren't well settled, I think the FCC did show some regulatory humility there, and I hope it will continue to do so. I think there are there needs to be room for innovation, for business models to, to evolve and experiment in ways that are within how I would say it is within the construct of the value system it created, the value system of Internet openness. And essentially, that's what the FCC order did. It said, you know, we're not going to put a thumb on the scale on this, but we're going to look at that relative to these, this value of Internet openness. And if it doesn't, if it promotes the value of Internet openness or if it, um, or it runs afoul of that, you know, that will inform our decision making. And I think, um, and I think that's, that's probably not such a bad thing. I think in some ways, ambiguity, um, is uh, industry's friend. And I, and I know sometimes industry says we want certainty, and my clients will say that sometimes as well. But having some ambiguity does promote a sense of um, it, it leads to, sometimes it leads to litigation, but sometimes it leads to um, business to business and business to consumer sort of working together to come up with things that are generally acceptable. I do a lot of work in the copyright technology space. It's loaded with ambiguity. There's a lot of litigation, but it also results in partnerships and licensing uh, because each side has something to lose. And so if they can resolve an issue rather than having to fight it out, sometimes that ambiguity, not having bright line rules on what's fair use or what's not in the copyright space, can promote some sense of uh, innovation and, and actually a working together of stakeholders that might otherwise be adverse to each other. Thank you. There are a few other issues we can discuss, but first I want to see if anyone in the audience has any questions. Go ahead. out of the 
dissent was this comment about the economics free zone. And myself, after having completed four years in economics doctoral training, I really wish I had gone back and been a lawyer, because it turns out at the end of the day, it's just a long mathematics. But I want to share with this panel what my research has shown in studying net neutrality rules across 50 countries. I have found that since the net, hard net neutrality laws have been made uh, in the Netherlands and South America, that their level of uh, mobile app innovation has declined. They produce fewer apps. And meanwhile, countries that have no rules or have soft rules, such as Japan, South Korea, and China, they are increasing their apps. Similarly, the countries in Europe who have soft rules. So my concern is from the perspective of the startup companies who need to have common technologies such as paid prioritization to compete against the established companies. Now those, those technologies are banned, but not in the countries in Asia where they are making, uh, where they're going to be continuing app innovation. China has just surpassed the US this year on revenue in the app industry, and they're going to keep going forward. So in many respects, in my opinion, the US has joined the losers club in terms of banning innovation. Thank you. Russell, can you phrase that as a question? Do you have sure. a question? Well, the question is, this, this decision is not included in the uh, That was in the dissent. Um, but on, on the other point, um, you know, just a fact, I just want to make, make two fact points. Uh, Mark, when you're talking about opus, you opus. Uh, but it sounds like what you're trying to say is it's a opus magnum for the law industry and making lots of litigation, lots of great work making there. There's no doubt. Congratulations. But I think the question is um, on the point of the... We will need expert witnesses. <laughs> the point on the, uh, on the comments of 4 million, it's not 4 million Americans. At least 125,000 people from Canada and open media. This was really a, a globally sourced effort for so, so to the extent that that was a question or a prod, Roslyn, <laughs> um, I, you, you know, we can quibble about the numbers. I, I think that the fact that there was complete and w widespread support for the FCC's action um, evidenced in the record, I think, is, is, is not easily disputed in this context. Other questions? Oh, go ahead. You know, it's it's really both a rulemaking and adjudication. Whether the FCC is relying on Section 706 or on Title II, it can both make rules under the, the authorities that the, that the courts have now given us, or it can engage in adjudication through the enforcement process. And I, I think either way, whether it's Title II or Section 706, it has a broad range of procedural options. As far as what the court would look at whenever that rule gets challenged, it would make a difference if it was just something done as an informal rule or informal adjudication as opposed to a formal rule or formal adjudication, although I know those are yeah, I mean, I, I would say in law school and administrative law classes, we talk a lot about these categories, the formal and informal rulemakings, adjudications. I only really have experience with the FCC among federal agencies, but those are very much blurrier uh, categories I, I find at the FCC in reality. There, there are occasionally formal adjudications. They're very rare. Uh, most of what the FCC does is informal adjudication or informal rulemaking. And as Matt says, often you, you sort of you have to disentangle them because both are going on at the same time sometimes. Any other questions? Uh, go ahead. Uh, Neil Cholson, I'm with uh, Commissioner Olhausen and the uh, Federal Trade Commission, so I'm uh, glad to hear their, their names up here and, and a mention of regulatory humility, which I think is one of her favorite phrases. Um, 
Markham, you mentioned the symphony, and the symphony had three parts, but one part that was absent, obviously, was Congress. And I was wondering, um, uh, what's it going to take to build a harmonious, harmonious orchestra so that uh, if one of the players changes at the FCC, for example, if we get a different leadership, different leadership in there, um, uh, that the net neutrality rules, um, the principles that we all agree on for the open internet are permanent, rather than at the whim of uh, three commissioners at the FCC. Uh, so within my analogy, Congress was in the public umbrella uh, in terms of d coming up with a value system, Internet openness. And I think Congress has largely spoken in favor of Internet openness. Uh, the details are for the regulator to work out, and then Congress uh, and then the courts have to determine whether they've gone too far. And Congress has the ability to revisit this and give, you know, either change that value system or, or in its way, uh, create a different uh, landscape statutorily. Uh, so, it, in my experience on this issue, it's difficult for Congress to act. It's a detailed technological space. They've attempted to do so a number of times. They've not been able to do it. Um, they may be able to do it at some point. I'm not. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not super. I wouldn't hold my breath that Congress will be able to do something or do it quickly. It takes a long time. After the AT&T breakup, it took 20 years. Uh, for Congress to get around to deal with the statutory framework that uh, they wanted to. Uh, and, uh, you know, this has been 15 years. It's been uh, that, that Congress has tried to work on this, and mostly the FCC has been working in this space. So Congress, of course, has the prerogative to do so. It's, it seems to me Congress has had some difficulty doing smaller type of issues that are not as difficult, and whether they're going to be able to get to something as this complex that has this much effect on different stakeholders with the polarization on some very important details. There's broad agreement on some of the bigger principles. In some ways, that's what the expert agency is for, to deal with the, the details. Uh, but on uh, some of these details, they're very important. So interconnection is one that, you know, for Netflix was very important. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of discussion in Congress about that issue and dealing with that issue. Um, and it was that I will say that was a tough issue to explain to regulators. Um, and, uh, you know, there's five of them uh, with multiple meetings to be able to explain that issue because it hadn't been worked on before in any meaningful way at the commission. So it's not to say Congress can't do it, but uh, it's, a, it's I, I wouldn't hold my breath about that. And you also had a question? Uh, is there room within the way the FCC manages things to believe that they will work with providers also, or has that been kind of left out by the statutes? It's a good question. So to clarify what I said before, you know, what I was so Mark mentioned that there are lots of consent decrees, which are settlements between parties and the government, in which they've laid out lots of behavioral remedies and, and requirements that may last 10 or 20 years. Uh, the FCC has the authority to do that as well in the enforcement context. Uh, it has actually increasingly moved in the direction of uh, longer-term con compliance plans and a lot of reliance on compliance plans. Again, I don't want to get it. We could have about an hour-long or three-hour-long discussion about the current envir enforcement environment at the FCC. I would say there's a lot of suspicion between private par mutual suspicion between private parties and the current enforcement bureau, uh, and the kinds of cooperation that have gone on in the past are uh, they haven't been obliterated, but they've been narrowed because I think parties. And I'm talking about 
all parties, Markham's clients, my clients, uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in the industry, but there's a lot less benefit in trying to cooperate and negotiate. So it's, it's not institutionally, the FCC is not by any means institutionally incapable of doing what I was talking about. Right now, I could not in good faith advise my clients to engage in quite as much of an open back and forth because it might well be that it would hurt them in the end. Can I just give one, one more perspective on that? I, I really like this concept of regulatory humility that's been thrown out. I think that's the crux of this debate. If several years from now um, broadband providers feel like the agency has acted with regulatory humility, at, at one point it will just be a footnote whether the agency was relying on Title II authority, Section 706 authority. The meaningful thing is what it does with that power. And, and I think, you know, with all due respect to Markham, he's representing companies who are seeking the regulation of others. It's, it's easy from that perspective to see humility from the standpoint of providers uh, that are the target of that regulation. We don't feel like there's a whole lot of humility right now. The FCC is talking about using these Title II powers for very sweeping privacy regulation. It's talking about business broadband rate regulation. It looks to me like a lack of humility. And I think that's the crux of this concern is really how much you trust a regulatory agency to, to oversee this industry. Thank you. Well, you although I will say it's that that carries is a little unfair because it's, I represent companies that have been harmed by the actions of companies that have been regulated without an enforcement mechanism up, up until today. So it wasn't as if they sua sponte decided, hey, we needed s some rules against a whole set of another sector of the industry. But I do think, and I said before, going forward, in terms of this concept of regulatory humility, the FCC should allow innovation, investment, uh, and uh, some room for, for, for broadband providers uh, whether it's in the privacy context or in another context, to to try different things without um, without uh, putting too much of a thumb on those kind of innovations, as long as it's within in the concept uh, within this value system of internet openness. One last question. Go ahead. hoping that the FCC won't be as rigid and they'll look at what's benefiting consumers and not harming the internet. And I think you said maybe not dogma over value and that, um, you know, these advisory opinions have to pass muster and going along. But then going back to what Judge Williams said, he said that there wasn't enough evidence that the FCC actually demonstrated reasonableness in interpreting the ambiguity in the statute. Sorry, is there a question? So how can we how can we be sure that what is benefiting consumers and what is harming the internet ecosystem or what is do you know what I'm saying? Like where is what's the balance test? I mean I think for, for all these discussions about regulatory humility and, and the FCC to look carefully and thoughtfully at whatever sort of challenges to the rules come before them, I think that's exactly right. I think what's important here, though, is that the court has upheld the FCC's authority to be the cop on the beat in those contexts. And so we can continue and we should continue to have the debates about, you know, what's next in terms of how these rules are applied or what they mean in various contexts. But I think uh, to had the, had the, the D.C. Circuit not uh, upheld the FCC's reclassification here, there would be no cop on the beat. And so, you know, I, I guess that's a form of regulatory humility, but I think it's also an absence of, of the ability to, to continue to evaluate the, the, the behaviors of different actors in a thoughtful and uh, um, important regulatory way. So, so I think there, like, 
the FCC has set up a framework where they will evaluate things that aren't covered by the Bright Line rules on a case-by-case basis, and that... The question is, what is the framework? Like, is it cost-benefit analysis? So they have a... a there's uh, several factors. I'd have to... I think some other people have the, the <laughs> order pulled up, but there, there's six um, non-exhaustive factors that they would use... Um, uh, to evaluate those things. And they're pretty explicit. I mean, to be, to be clear, like in the 2010 rules, the non-discrimination rule provided, I think, four factors. And so to the extent that people were, were relatively, you know, that, that it's, it's funny to me that we're sort of, that this has become like a vaguer rule, the general conduct rule, when actually it's become more and more refined over the years um, as the FCC has added more factors. Well, thank you. I'm, sorry, actually, I'm afraid we're going to have to stop it there. But if you have any more questions, I'm sure the panelists will be happy to talk to you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. That was, I didn't mean to. No, that, was a, that was a question for you. <laughs> I was probably thinking if Opus 1 uh, weren't